Mark 15, 21 through 37 from the English Standard Version. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross." So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour... Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The word of the Lord. God. Well, typically on Palm Sunday, we would read the verses that talk about Jesus coming into Jerusalem. But we passed those months ago because, again, the way the Gospel of Mark is set up, we spend a long time in the first three years, or a short time in the first three years of Jesus' life for 12 chapters, and then we've been chapter after chapter walking through. So Palm Sunday, we actually talked about months ago, and now we're here at the very last part of his life on earth prior to what will come next Sunday. And we're going to divide this so that Good Friday will sort of be the second half of talking about the death uh, of Christ and some of the things we learn from that. This is a difficult Marks of all four Gospels. Marks is the darkest. Uh, it's, it's, they're all difficult to read if you think about what Jesus went through in, in human form. It's, it's quite compelling and, and hard. It can be difficult to embrace, to see the Creator tortured by His creation. Um, but for many of us, uh, we become sometimes inoculated to this. You sort of hear, well, Jesus died on a cross. And somehow I think I want to just point out four things that I think the Scripture teaches us, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, that it sometimes we can pass over because it's such a familiar story to us. And so I want us to look. If you have your Bible, open up. We're going to be looking at a couple of the things that Mark points out. Each of the Gospels... Uh, they're in agreement, uh, uh, but they each point out different pieces of what happened during this period. Remember, Jesus is on the cross for many hours, and so lots 
happened before he perished and before he died. But we just have a few things that Mark has told us leading up to the crucifixion itself and actually what happened, what they, what was heard and experienced on the cross. So one of the things we, as we opened, he, he's compelled, uh, a passerby, it says, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in, which is Africa, by the way, was coming in from the country. says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Scholars think this is because Alexander and Rufus probably had become Christians and were known to the author and the people reading this story. Remember, Mark writes this to Roman believers about 70 A.D. And so uh, scholars think that Simon became a Christian, and that his children were probably involved in the life and known to those people. That's the only reason they can think why Mark would call them out by name, that uh, he was the father of Alexander and Rufus. So the fact that Simon carried the cross, that was not typical. Okay, The cross, the top beam of the cross, was carried by the um, person that was going to be crucified. It would be strapped on their shoulders, a very heavy beam. And so what we're, we probably know, the Scripture doesn't tell us exactly why Jesus didn't carry that piece to the site, most likely because of what he had endured so far. He was just physically too weak. We don't know for sure. But I think what's, what's interesting is it's just a great paradox is that he was so weak, he couldn't carry his cross, and yet this is the same God that strengthens us. We have crosses metaphorically, and, and he strengthens us to carry what goes on in our lives. And here he is at his weakest point as a human being, not even able to do what other prisoners were, were doing. The cross for Rome was a part of their, the way they kept the law. Roman peace was exacted at a brutal price. It was if you disobeyed, you you would go through this, and they publicly humiliated people to the utmost extent in order that people wouldn't defy Rome. They they were always putting down rebellions all over the empire, and so to uh, horribly mistreat people like this in crucifixion was a way they kept uh, that. There's a second little piece that Mark gives us in here. In verse 23, it says, "...and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh." Now, myrrh, the only other place we really know myrrh from, right, is when they, the, the, the wise men bring these gifts, right? Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So myrrh is uh, derived from a plant, and it has a very small narcotic uh, a property in it. And so it was known in the ancient world, wine, alcohol, mixed with myrrh, was thought to be uh, some sort of way to relieve pain. It's interesting, uh, Proverbs 31, you know, most of we think of it as Proverbs 31 woman, where, you know, the perfect woman is described, but that starts at verse 6. The first five verses, very interesting, it's this king, Lemuel, who we don't know much about, but the first five verses of that talk about what you do with someone who's suffering and how having alcohol will dull the pain. And if you read it, especially verse 6, is alcohol are for those who are dying. And wine should be given to those who are in anguish. Earlier it says, but wine is not for kings. Kings should bear the pain. Kings should be alert through the time. This was given so Jesus 
would, it was, I don't know if it was an act of mercy or not, but it was a sense of take this and you won't feel it as badly because it's pretty horrible. And Jesus says no. And I think it's, it's quite instructive that this wasn't to alleviate thirst. This was so he wouldn't experience the full weight of the pain. And Jesus turns it away because he enters fully in because it wasn't fitting for kings. They were to experience what was happening. And even though he was facing death, that it was something that he was um, supposed to not avoid because God's purpose for him was to experience the full weight of what he was going to go through. We'll talk more about some of the elements of that in just a minute. But, you know, it's tempting, I think, would have been tempting for Jesus in his human form to want to sleep through it, to self-medicate through it. To You can't sleep through the cross, but we can turn away and not fully enter into sometimes the difficulties of life. You know, I don't know about you, but we all go through things that we'd be tempted. I'm tempted to pull the covers over my head sometimes and just not get out of bed, at least metaphorically, sometimes literally. And I'm tempted sometimes to just want to dull the system. You know, that's, I don't think anybody takes their first drink or pops their first pill to self-medicate in that way, thinking, oh, I don't want to do it. It's, it starts out, I just don't want the pain to be so bad. And one of the things we learn is that God the Father, while turning away from Christ, His purpose was to go through the pain because it was through the cross, enduring the pain, the joy set before Him. For God's glory and for us to be one back to Him. And I just want to encourage those of you who are going through times when you just feel like I've got to do something to distract me because we live in a world where distractions are mighty prevalent, aren't they? Most of them, most of us carry our distractions around in our pockets or our purses or we, in many ways, we can be uh, thought where I'm not going to deal fully with what's going on. And when I look at Jesus having the opportunity to take even a little bit of wine to say, I mean, I, I think I would have been like, yeah, Give it to me. Any help I can get. And here Jesus is, and He says, I'm committed to the purposes of God all the way. Are you committed to the purposes of God all the way? Third thing, this whole scene, the whole brutality of what's experienced here is not simply a picture of what humans did. We can somehow say, well, there are bad guys here, the Romans or the religious leadership or the bad guys here. Guys, what this is is a picture of, of God's wrath coming down on Christ. Now, it can make us feel uncomfortable talking about something like the wrath of God. The Bible doesn't have any problem talking about it. It talks about it hundreds of times. Both in the Old Testament and the New Testament is full of this idea. We sing it in that sort of contemporary hymn, uh, In Christ Alone, right? On that cross where Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. And we can think, in our terms, we can think, well, is God some brute? Because we think in human terms, the wrath of a, of a father or somebody, we think, well, that's, I don't want a God who gets angry. Okay? We've misunderstood here. The only way this makes sense and what the Bible teaches is that 
Sin is incredibly serious. And it is an offense against God that the wrath of God is poured out upon sin because God created this world. He created us relationally to be sinless, right? Adam and Eve didn't come in with sin in the world. That was later. He created it perfectly and He sees what sin has done to me and to you and to our world and the brokenness. And the wrath of God, the Bible says, is poured out upon that which has so decimated His creation. And it's like sometimes I think we say, oh, you know, saying what? It's just, I mean, gosh, God gets so exercised. It's wrath of God. You know, it's, just, it's just no big deal. One of the major denominations in our country asked permission to print in Christ alone in their hymnal about five years ago, but they decided they couldn't put in that line. They said, we can put in, and on that cross where Jesus died, the love of God was magnified. Why talk about wrath? They weren't given permission by the hymn writers, which I'm glad of, because if sin is no big deal, we don't need a Savior. Sin violates God's holiness. And yes, we've imbibed in the sin, but it came before us. It's God's not mad at you. He's mad at sin. To the extent you are a child of wrath, the Bible says, then we have taken on that which God sees has so decimated what He created perfect. That's why Jesus came to protect us. He said, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Paul writes that Jesus delivers us from the wrath of God. That you don't have to fear God's wrath if you're under Christ because when He looks at everything that's been bent and broken, He sees you as under the perfection that is Jesus because He bore the wrath that is just. See, if we say it's just no big deal, it's like if you go to court and you just go up to the judge and you've done the most heinous crimes that we could possibly think of in our culture. You can just imagine whatever the heinous crime, and you go up to the judge and the judge is just furious because you've acted in a way that would just be, you know, you've brutalized or you've done whatever and, and you say, you're getting so worked up, Judge. I mean, it's no big deal. Just you, you have the ability as the judge to just say, you know, probation for a, a couple weeks. No one in that courtroom would think, oh, well, there's a just judge. He really understands what's at stake here. He's furious because you violated. Think how much more we can't even begin to understand what God felt when what He created perfect was so violated, and we in our sinful patterns have done that. And we bear the guilt and we bear the shame of that. And so Jesus comes and He bears the full weight of God's wrath, not just what people did, not just what the Romans did or religious leaders did. He bore the wrath of God. And this is why Jesus says, Why have you forsaken me? My God, my God. He never knew a time when God wasn't so present that He felt and sensed God's presence with Him. But the wrath of God being poured out. I could give you tons of Scriptures that 
point to this, but uh, I'll just give you two that I think are, are in Galatians 3.13, it says, Christ, the curse of the law, the curse that is uh, trying to get to God on, on things we do, he says, Christ became that curse for us. Jesus absorbed in Himself that curse. There's a biblical word called propitiation, and in just its briefest form, it means absorbing the wrath, the rightful wrath. In 1 John 4.10, it says, This is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son Jesus to be that wrath-absorbing propitiation for our sins. We have so much reason to be thankful that God takes sin seriously because then our forgiveness can be completely one. If it's no big deal, then we don't need a big Savior. Finally, in verse 27, we have this story, and again, we, we know the picture of Christ being crucified between two thieves, but I want to point out something to you may or may, or may not have thought of. Verse 27, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. So here's Jesus numbered with people who were guilty by Roman law and Christ the innocent. So one on his right hand and one on his left hand a thief. Many months ago, we were working our way through the book of Mark, and in chapter 10, his disciples, who all the way through the book of Mark, we saw that his disciples just really didn't get or understand. But if you'll remember, there was a request made by two of the inner circle, James and John. Starting in verse 36 of chapter 10, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Always a loaded question. Jesus said, I guess Jesus said, okay, ask away. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us, one of us wants to be right on your right hand, and one of us wants to be on your left hand when you come into glory. Do you remember what Jesus' response was to them? You have no idea what you're asking. Jesus is going into glory at this point. And there's one guy on his right hand. And there's one guy on his left hand. You want to go with Jesus into glory? You don't know what you're asking because James and John had this picture, I'm sure, of golden thrones and riding the grand parade and there they were in places of honor. Little did they know that two thieves were in the great places of honor, in a sense. Not that we would see it, not the way we would see, but Paul writes this in the book of Galatians. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. I haven't been literally crucified, Paul says, but I've been crucified. I was on the right hand or the left hand because the life that I now live in this body I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me.
There's only one way to live, and that's to die. That's what Jesus says. Is that's the only way to live, is to actually give up your life. The life we now live in the flesh, we don't have to give it up as Jesus did and die physically, but as long as there's one God in your life and it's you, and there's no cross and there's no sacrifice and there's no laying down of your rights and your will, then you can't experience what will come next Sunday because there is no resurrection without a cross. There's no life again unless you're willing to say, Jesus, I give up. I don't have all the answers. I'm not in charge. I don't have the strength. You do. You do. You do. And when He invites you to sit on His right hand and His left hand, are you willing to go be with Him, not deny Him, not betray Him, but be willing to be on that cross? Is it painful? Absolutely. Is it worthwhile? Without a doubt. Because life again springs. Life again springs from the cross. Would you pray with me please? Lord, as we look at the humiliation that You went through preceding this glorification to follow, Lord, we should be and and we are humbled that the Creator subjected Himself to His creation in order to bear, Lord, that wrath that rightfully comes out upon sin. Lord, teach us to take sin seriously and to know what a cost You paid, but what freedom You bring when we obey. Lord, when we receive You into our lives, when we decide that it is Your way and not our way that leads to life, we thank You that we can trust that there is no wrath upon us, that You've delivered us. And that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, because He Himself is the propitiation for our sins. Lord, this morning we take these elements, this bread and this wine, and we celebrate what You said that on the night You were betrayed, You took bread. And when You given thanks, You broke it and You gave it to Your disciples and You said, take, eat. This is My body which is broken for You. Do this in the remembrance of Me. And then after supper, You took a cup of wine and He gave thanks, gave it to them, and said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, shed for you and for many, for the remission of sins. As oft as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, this cup poured out that you asked your Father if you could bypass, but you submitted to his will to drink this cup of wrath. Lord, it now for us becomes the cup of refreshing, the cup of life, because You drank our cup of death. And so, Lord, we come this morning and we would acknowledge our need of You, and we would acknowledge, Lord God, that You, in Your way, that only You could do, have reached down to us, saved us completely and utterly for all time. 
For this we thank You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.